text for the sermon this evening comes from the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 1, verses 4 through 11. Last time we considered the first three verses of Acts 1 and noted how the risen and ascended Christ is involved with his church, he is building his church, He's governing his church, and now we turn to some promises that Christ uh, speaks concerning his church in verses 4 through 11. So let's hear the word of our God as we find it in Acts chapter 1, verses 4 through 11. And being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you have heard from me. For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Last time I preached here, we noted how we are to believe in a risen and ascended Christ who is intimately involved in building the building of his church here on earth. Even though Christ is not physically on earth, he is reigning in heaven, building his church. And this is one of the great promises in Scripture, that Christ will build his church. It's not an if or a when, it is a sure promise. Christ saves hopeless, destitute sinners, bringing them into fellowship with himself and with his church. And how... Does Christ build his church here? This is an important question as we uh, start planting a church here in Oklahoma City. How does Christ build his church? We get a small preview of how the church is built in the words of our text. Acts 1 verses 4 through 11. And we see three promises unfold from this text that demonstrate that the building of the church is a work of the Holy Spirit as he equips believers for the work of ministry. In Acts 1 verses 4 through 11, we see the, the promise of the Holy Spirit. We see the promise of power. And we see the promise of Christ's return. I want us to consider these promises as we labor to church plant here in Oklahoma City. And so consider with me Acts 1 verses 4 through 11 under the theme, Believe the promises of God and get to work. As we set to the work of church planting, we must believe in the promise of the Holy Spirit. Christ-centered the minds of the disciples on this promise when he commanded them to wait in Jerusalem for the promise of the Father. Now, you won't necessarily find a whole lot about the Holy Spirit in the Gospel of Luke. Remember that uh, Luke is writing the book of Acts to Theophilus as a second volume to his Gospel. And you don't really find a whole lot about the Holy Spirit in Luke. We do read of John the Baptist's testimony 
that Christ would baptize with the Holy Spirit and, and fire in Luke 3, verse 16. But other than that, not much appears. However, Christ spoke frequently of this promise in the Gospel of John, and specifically John, verses 14 through 17. And Luke, as he writes the book of Acts to Theophilus, seems to be assuming that Theophilus has some knowledge of what Christ told the disciples in the upper room as it is narrated in John 14 through 17. And the context of John 14 is that of Christ encouraging the disciples. Christ has informed them that he will be leaving them, that he will be crucified, and that he will go to be with his Father in heaven. And they, the disciples, will be entrusted to carry out Christ's mission on this earth. But Christ tells them he's not going to be leaving them alone. Christ promises in John 14, verses 16 through 17, that I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may abide with you forever, the Spirit of truth. Christ promises to send the Holy Spirit to the disciples. And this promise is called the promise of the Father because Christ is going to petition the Father to send the Holy Spirit to the disciples. And this wasn't a new promise. Uh, Bruce read earlier from Isaiah 32, and there we saw, saw one of those Old Testament whisperings of the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. And, and those whisperings are seen throughout the Old Testament. And this promise, uh, the fact that this is the promise of the Father reminds us that the work of salvation is a Trinitarian work. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are all involved in their respective roles in building the church. And the Father delights to send His church blessings. He delights to send the blessing of the Holy Spirit to His people. And so it is very fitting that Christ reminded the disciples of the blessed promise of the Holy Spirit immediately before his ascension. Christ is just about to leave the disciples and ascend to, to the throne, to his throne in heaven. And the disciples could once again be tempted to think that Christ is forsaking them. And he is going to leave them and they're going to have to continue this work all by themselves. But Christ reminds them that he's going to send someone to help them. He's going to send the Holy Spirit who is both a helper and a comforter. Just as Christ taught the disciples about the Holy Spirit before his crucifixion to grant them comfort as they saw Christ crucified and hanging on that cross, so Christ reminds them right before his ascension about the Spirit to encourage them in their new labor. It is also necessary to note that Christ doesn't just remind the disciples of the coming of the Holy Spirit. Christ gives them a command as well. He commands them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait, to wait for the promise of the Father. There are several things that Christ commanded his disciples to do after 
his resurrection. The most memorable of these commands would be the Great Commission, which we read of in Matthew 28. Christ gave that command to them while they were in Galilee. And the disciples could have thought that, that now that Christ has ascended into heaven, that now immediately we are to set that work of the Great Commission. We are to go to all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Christ says they're not to immediately start doing that. They are to wait in Jerusalem. This can seem rather anticlimactic. Christ ascended into heaven and now what? What? We just wait? We just saw this glorious thing of Christ ascending before our eyes into heaven and now... We don't have anything to do. Shouldn't we be doing something more productive than just waiting? Well, we will see that they did engage in, in productive Christian behavior. They prayed. And they elected someone to fulfill the twelve. But this idea of waiting teaches us an important lesson. There will be times in the Christian life and there will be times, even in church planting, when we must set to the work of waiting. When waiting is commanded or necessitated by God's word, it is no less God-glorifying than going out proclaiming the good news in a formal sense. We should not dis- despise such periods, but we should earnestly set to that work of prayer when all we can do is wait. Many of you have just come from uh, a period of waiting. You have waited for the Lord to send you a pastor, and the Lord answered your prayer. And now you're coming upon a time of, of new labor, of more focused energy and labor in Christ's kingdom. And so the disciples were to await the promise of the Holy Spirit, but we have to consider what is this promise of the Holy Spirit? I don't intend to give a a, a fulsome uh, description of this promise of the Holy Spirit. We'll uh, deal with it more when we come to Acts 2. But I want us to note several things. First, the Holy Spirit has operated throughout the history of redemption. The Holy Spirit has been the one who has regenerated and applied the benefits of salvation to those in both the Old and the New Testament. It's not as though this promise of the Holy Spirit is the first time that the Spirit became involved in salvation. No, the Old Testament saints were indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Read of of David in, in Psalm 51 praying that the Holy Spirit would not depart from him. Second, this promise of the Holy Spirit in our text is distinct from what the Old Testament saints had. This promise is one that the Old Testament saints looked forward to and longed for. Joel prophesied of a day when the Holy Spirit would be poured out upon all flesh. As I said earlier, I'll address this in more detail when we come to Acts chapter 2. But for now, I want you to understand that what makes this promise of the Holy Spirit distinct 
from what the Old Testament saints had is not the quality of the operation of the Holy Spirit, but the range of the indwelling. In the Old Testament, the Spirit's indwelling was largely restricted to a defined people group, the people of Israel, God's covenanted people. In the New Testament, the outpouring of the Spirit is upon all flesh. In other words, it's not limited to a certain ethnic group, but it's for every people group. The issue then is not quality, but quantity. Another important distinction with this promise of the Holy Spirit is that this outpouring would be distinct from what believers typically have. To be abundantly clear, the outpouring that the disciples were to wait for at Jerusalem would be a unique occurrence in redemptive history. This outpouring was to confirm to the disciples that Christ had ascended into heaven and that he had poured out his spirit upon all flesh. Remember Christ's words in the Gospel of John that where Christ promised that once he left, he would send the Holy Spirit to them. To have the Spirit poured out in in this very visibly distinct way would confirm Christ's word. And even though the disciples couldn't see that Christ was, was there in heaven, seated at the right hand of God the Father, they could see that he was truly seated at the right hand of God the Father by the demonstration of the Holy Spirit coming in power. As Christ said to the disciples in John 14, verse 26, He would send this helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name. He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you. What does it mean for us to believe in the promise of the Holy Spirit? What does it mean for us that Christ promised to send the Holy Spirit. Well, there's only one way that Oklahoma City Reformed Presbyterian Church is going to grow. It's not by having the right stuff. It's not by having a church that looks a certain way. It's not by having the right kind of people join the church. It's not by having a certain number of meetings or a particular building to worship in. The only way that Oklahoma City Reformed Presbyterian Church is going to grow is through the operation of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit must be doing a work in our own lives, sanctifying us, causing us to grow in a a love for God and a love for our neighbor. The Holy Spirit must be working a spirit of unity, a spirit of of forgiveness, and a spirit of of like-mindedness in us. And the Holy Spirit must be at work as well in the hearts of those who do not know Christ. All the illustrious words and arguments we use will not ultimately save a person. All the beautiful gospel tracts we hand out will not ultimately save a person. Yes, not denying that God uses means. But a person 
is saved, when the Holy Spirit causes him or her to be born again. The Holy Spirit takes that stony heart and replaces it with a heart of flesh. We must be a people who live a life dependent upon the Holy Spirit. As we engage in ministry, we must be dependent upon the work of the Holy Spirit. We must be praying that the Holy Spirit would work in our own lives and the lives of those we come in contact with. And as we plant a church, we must believe in the promise of power. The work of the Holy Spirit is not simply one that comforts us, but it is a work that is accompanied with a very real power. Our belief in the Holy Spirit must not be this cold, abstract doctrine. It must be a belief that readily acknowledges and acts in accordance with the power of the Holy Spirit. It must be a belief that knows the centrality of the Holy Spirit's power to Christ's mission. Now in Acts, we still see some of the confusion of the disciples regarding Christ's mission. In our text we read that... that when uh, the disciples and Christ had come together, they asked Christ, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? You see, the disciples had still had a, a certain idea about the way Christ would build the church. They still did not fully understand what Christ was doing. They were wanting the church to, to feel the way they wanted it to feel. They were wanting the church to, to look the way they were wanting it to. Disciples thought that Christ's mission was to restore the kingdom of Israel. They believed the Messiah had come to restore the glory days of David and Solomon. Maybe to even make them more grand. They believed that Christ had come to once again make Israel an independent, sovereign nation. But Christ corrects this type of thinking when he says in, in verse 7, It is not for you to know times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Disciples we're operating too much in the mindset of the old administration of the covenant of grace. For one, their minds were too focused on the old manner of God's working in history. After all, it was the duty of the Old Testament prophets to, to look ahead, to, to try to understand more about the coming of Christ. They prophesied so much about the coming of the Messiah. The Messiah who would suffer and die and wash away their sins. They were to look ahead, see what God had promised. But now that Christ has come, there is a looking back. 
a pointing back to what Christ has done. As Christians, we must constantly be looking back. As a church, we do not seek to uncover the secrets of the future, but we point people to the work of Christ 2,000 years ago and urge them to live out their lives in accordance with that work. It's not the duty of the church to seek to know the future and specifically to seek to know the future that God has not revealed to us in His Word. We have the Word of God. Yes, God's Word speaks about certain aspects of the future, about the consummation, about Christ coming again, about the judgment and heaven. But we are to be content with what God's Word says about the future. That is all we need to know for our lives, what is contained in God's Word. But the disciples were also mistaken in the scope of Christ's mission. We notice that they asked Christ, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? The disciples' eyes were focused on Israel and Israel alone. They still saw the churches being directly tied to the nation of Israel. Their eyes were closed to the abundance of Old Testament prophecies that spoke to about the global nature of Christ's mission, the global nature of Christ's work. And so Christ says that the disciples will be witnesses of him, not just in Jerusalem, not just in Judea, not just in Samaria, but they will be witnesses to the ends of the earth. And that's really... uh, uh, the structure of the book of Acts. We see the outpouring of the Spirit in chapter 2 happen in Jerusalem. Then chapter 10 is spraying to Samaria. And by the end, Paul is all the way in Rome. There is the progression, the widening, the spreading of the gospel to all nations. And the disciples could no longer take a back seat to this mission. While the disciples asked, Lord, will, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Christ says, you shall be witnesses to me. The disciples cannot just be students anymore. Now is the time for them to set to the work that they have been called to. They were once disciples, following Christ, learning from Christ. Now they are to be apostles. Now they are to boldly proclaim the gospel of salvation in Christ and Christ alone. But they are not to be alone. They will receive power. Certainly is a different type of power than what they were hoping for. They were hoping for that power to know the future, to know the times and the seasons. But Christ makes it clear that that is the authority of the Father. That's not their relegated bound of authority. It's not in the realm for them to know. Instead, they are to receive power from the Holy Spirit. Now, power is a broad word with a large connotation of meaning. When we think of power, we might think of energy or a sense of authority residing in, in a person or an institution. However, when Christ says that the disciples shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon them, he is speaking particularly of the power 
that the Spirit grants to, to perform miracles and the power by which the preaching of the word is made effectual to salvation. For the disciples to begin their apostolic ministry, the Spirit must descend upon them. They needed the Spirit to be poured out upon them to perform the signs and wonders that they would be called to perform. But it is also the power of the Holy Spirit that makes the preaching of the Word effectual. We read in John 16, verse 8, that when the Spirit has come, He will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Of sin because they do not believe in Me, that is Christ. Of righteousness because I go to My Father and you see Me no more. Of judgment because a ruler of this world is judged. When a preacher stands in the pulpit and proclaims the word of God, it's not his perceived eloquence that changes the hearts. It's not the atmosphere, the, the created atmosphere that changes the hearts. It is a spirit working in the heart of the individual, convicting him of sin and making known to him the righteousness which is offered in the gospel of Christ. It is a spirit who guides into all truth. Jesus says in John 16 that the Holy Spirit will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. It is a spirit that enlightens the heart. Do you believe in the power of the Holy Spirit? This is a power that has worldwide consequences as the gospel goes forth into lands both far and near. This power wasn't just for the time of the apostles. This power is a power that exists today as the gospel is faithfully preached. It's not power that demonstrates itself in signs and wonders, for those are not needed anymore. Instead, it is a power that changes the totally depraved sinner. The sinner that knows nothing but darkness and the blackness of sin. It's a power that makes him a new creation. It's a power that makes those who were once dead alive. It's a power that applies the salvation that Christ earned on the cross. It is a power that causes us to put away sin and put on righteousness. It's a power that makes us dead to sin and alive to Christ. Do you believe in the power of the preaching to convert a sinner? Do you believe that the ordinary means of grace have power the simple preaching of the gospel? The simple administration of the sacrament. Do you make it a regular habit to pray for these simple means of grace? That God would use them to transform lives for His glory.
must believe in the power of the Holy Spirit. This is one way that Christ builds His church. Let this promise encourage you. But you must also believe in the promise of Christ's return. After Christ had spoken to the disciples, He he ascended into heaven. We read of this in our text. Now when he had spoken these things, while they watched, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, who also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. I believe it is very natural that the disciples stood there looking steadfastly into heaven. They had walked and talked with Jesus for three years. They had eaten bread and drunk wine with him. They had seen him perform miracles, healing the lepers, restoring sight to the blind, healing those who had been paralyzed. They had also seen him perform wonders, multiplying loaves and fishes, walking on water. But one thing they had never seen Christ do was levitate and slowly go up into heaven. This would have been a profoundly unnatural sight for the disciples, especially for a time in history that knows nothing of airplanes, parachutes, or helicopters. To see Christ disappear into heaven would have been an amazing sight. But these two men standing beside the disciples, these two men standing by them in white apparel, these holy messengers, these angels, gently reminded the disciples of their duty. It reminded them that they weren't to continue standing there, looking up into heaven, seeing if, when, or how Christ would return. Christ would return. And he would return in the same way that they had seen him go into heaven. This wasn't a question that they needed to concern themselves with. Christ would return. Instead, the disciples were to set to the work that God had called them to. Now, there are, there are two temptations when considering the return of Christ. The first temptation is, is that which the disciples fell into immediately. They stopped everything they were doing and, and looked into heaven, waiting for the return of Christ. This is something that the church in Thessalonica would struggle with. They had such an expectancy of, of Christ's return that they stopped working, so much so that Paul had to rebuke them and say, if anyone does not work, he shall not eat. But the other temptation regarding Christ's return is the thinking that his coming is far off and not heeding the warning that Christ's coming will be like a thief in the night. This is the temptation to spiritual sleepiness. Rather than standing, looking up into heaven, we walk on this earth with our eyes looking down, solely focused on the things of this life, solely fixated on material things, raising a family, building a career, buying a home. 
with no thought given to the fact that Christ is going to come again. I fear this is a temptation that we are most given over to. We pray, come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. But the way we live our lives, we do not really want Jesus to come. We have too many other things to accomplish before Christ comes. So many things to experience. So many places to explore. So many different foods to try. This mentality can lend itself to a certain spiritual laziness where we are not setting the work a God has called us to. We perhaps are lukewarm to the spiritual state of unbelieving family members or friends. We are callous to sins in our own lives because we have bought into the lie that, oh, I can work on that sin later. Right now, I can enjoy this sin. I can, I can continue as I was. I've still got many, many years to figure that out. Rather than working as though Christ could return at any moment, we let ourselves slack off and think His coming is far away. But we must believe the promise of Christ's return. And we must act in accordance with that promise. It's amazing reading of the fervency that saints had in years past regarding the return of Christ. John Calvin, as he lay on his deathbed, continued to work, and his friends pled with him to refrain from his labors. And John Calvin's response was, What? Would you have the Lord find me idle when he comes? Not many of us are on our deathbed, and yet many of us can be tempted to be idle. We are blinded to the return of Christ. So as we plant this church here in Oklahoma City, we must know that Christ is going to return, and so set the work he has called us to. We must believe this promise, and as we heard last Sunday, we must start to build up the walls whatever station and calling God has put us in. And we must do so knowing the power that the Holy Spirit promises. The Spirit works that power through the means of faithful gospel laborers. The Holy Spirit uses means to build up His church. So how does Christ build His church? He accomplishes that work through the operation of the Holy Spirit in our hearts. The Holy Spirit equips us to be witnesses of Christ and grants our testimony of Christ power to the saving of souls. But we must also be mindful of Christ's return, eagerly longing for that day, setting to the work He has called us to while it is yet today. And so let us set to work, believing these promises of Christ, the risen and ascended King. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we give you thanks that you have sent us the Holy Spirit, 
that we are not alone in this work, but that you are ever with us. Lord, we give you thanks that your Holy Spirit has power, power to the saving of souls. And Lord, we pray that we would ever believe in that power, that in a world that is given over to so much materialism, that we would believe that you are a God of power and much might. Lord, we pray that as we believe in the Holy Spirit, we would set the work you have called us to, eagerly looking forward to the day of Christ's return, believing the promise that he will come again on the clouds of glory and bring us once again to himself. Go with us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.